This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back this week after a short spring break, and already we're looking forward to summer. Specifically, this summer's World Cup competition, with a little more than 80 days until football, our soccer's biggest tournament, will host country Brazil be ready. And if Brazil's religious devotion to football isn't enough, we'll also discuss the growth of religious freedom in Cuba. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Mexico is one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists. Many remain missing, others slain for reporting negative items in the media about drug cartels or big business. Recently, protests against the violence have appeared in Mexico City. Sebastian Aguirre, a member of the organization Article 19, joins the protesters in the streets. In 2013, there were 330 attacks against the press. This is an increase of over 44 percent over the last year. Gregorio Jimenez is one of the journalists who inspired the protests. Jimenez was a freelance journalist killed in February of this year. The Mexican government points to a personal dispute as the cause of his death, but Jimenez's colleagues decided to read through the legal documents themselves. Journalists investigating Jimenez's case found the police work to be sloppy. Just before his death, Jimenez had written a story linking a prominent businesswoman to a possible kidnapping ring. Guantanamo Bay is transferring some of its detainees out of the camp in Cuba to Uruguay. Five inmates will be transferred. President Barack Obama has asked several countries to take on prisoners. Uruguay accepted. The United States government is also talking with other countries in the region. In general, transfers over the past few months have increased. Guantanamo Bay, also known as Gitmo, has drawn criticism from human rights groups. It is a detention facility opened by former President George W. Bush, to hold terrorism suspects from overseas following the September 11th attacks in 2001. The tight presidential race in El Salvador has come to an end. Electoral authorities declared Salvador Sanchez Seren as the winner and new president-elect. Sanchez Seren of the FMLN competed against Norman Quijano of the Arena Party. The Arena Party called for a revote after the electoral authorities declared the results. A recount showed just over 6,000 votes separated the candidates and provided the winning margin. Sanchez Seren will be the first guerrilla fighter to govern El Salvador. Through parts of its civil war and afterward until 2009, the conservative Arena Party ruled the country. The FMLN won the presidency for the first time five years ago. Sanchez Seren, who is currently vice president, will be inaugurated on June 1st. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Rarely does Latin Pulse wade into the realm of sports, 
But with the World Cup coming to Brazil in June and July, we figured this was the time. The International Federation of Football Association, or FIFA, has expressed its concerns that the construction of some stadiums needs to accelerate as the games approach. Brazilian authorities now admit some infrastructure improvements will not be ready for the quadrennial celebration of football, or as we call it in the U.S., soccer. Our guest, Paulo Sotero, the director of the Brazil Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in D.C., joined us via Skype to discuss Brazil and the Cup. I think Brazil will be ready in terms of the stadiums, in terms of the required transportation and the required accommodations for people, etc. But what has been lost already is a positive narrative that would come with such a major sports event. Uh, and this is because uh, the, there were delays uh, on building the, the, the venues for the, uh, the, the the games. There are, Brazil will host games in 12 cities, 12 capitals, in, in the state capitals uh, and the federal capital. Uh, the FIFA, the global uh, soccer organization, had asked Brazil to offer, uh, to prepare stadiums in eight cities, and President Lula at uh, the height of his popularity in a very positive economic moment for Brazil, decided that we should uh, go for 12 cities. After all, we are the country of soccer, etc. And, it, you know, uh, what happened is that uh, uh, due to an acute lack of implementation capacity, at various levels, not only at the federal level. The works you know, on stages, construction and renovation got delayed, same in terms of public transportation. And uh, there were protests starting uh, last June uh, that uh, uh, asked a very important question. You know, is this right? Don't we have other priorities? Should we be doing 12 stations when we could have done with eight. And uh, how about more investment in education and uh, in health and in public transportation? And this is all a discussion that started in Brazil. I consider a very healthy and important discussion and has continued. But the story is that the positive narrative that normally those uh, events for the country to, to have uh, was lost. And now uh, the government, especially at the federal level, is scrambling to defend the decision to host the World Cup in Brazil. We, we still see four stadiums not complete at this point. And this last weekend, a stadium in uh, Bayo Horizonte, um, part of the roof fell off. And so uh, we, we still have these concerns that... Um, uh, Many people have said that this is this is the Brazilian century, but this is not exactly the best foot to get off on as far as the Brazilian century goes. Well, uh, I that uh, about this being the Brazilian century would uh, is an assertion that many Brazilians would very much uh, uh, challenge. Uh, I think uh, a more you know, a reasonable statement that this is a century that offers Brazil the opportunity to consolidate very important political, social, and economic 
gains as a democracy uh, that has been achieved since democratization about in 1985. Uh, but uh, in order to, uh, you know, make this a very, continue to make this as a very positive moment in Brazil, there are many, many challenges that need to be tackled. And, uh, you know, the World Cup and two, day, two years after the World Cup, the Olympics in Rio, are challenges to the country, you know, to, to do things on time and to prepare venues and to work on infrastructure, actually, to prepare the people uh, to host an enormous amount of foreign visitors. And that is the, you know, there is a sense of anxiety in Brazil whether this, uh, whether we are going to do it right or not. And uh, the four, the problems on in the four stadiums that you mentioned, yeah, they are all unfortunate. Uh, uh, but obviously, they will. The problems will be fixed. Uh, FIFA has already confirmed all 12 venues, and the games will go on. I think there will be, in that regard, all the expectations of trouble, etc., will be kind of not fulfilled. Very anticlimactic. What we will have is for one month a bunch of games of soccer in Brazil which people love, and I think uh, in the end this may be uh, more positive than negative. Speaking about the positive parts, you mentioned three areas that protesters were out in the streets complaining about last summer and in the fall that we mentioned education, health care, and infrastructure in, in, in the preparations for the World Cup and for what is to come, the the Summer Olympics to come, infrastructure is going to be improved greatly throughout Brazil, is it not? Well, it is being improved. The question is a matter of pace, you know. Everything is improving in Brazil, including education, including health care. But the question is, is not improving fast enough. And this is the sense that uh, people has. What has happened in Brazil in the past uh, 20 years or so, is that uh, 40 million people uh, have emerged from uh, the lower classes or from poverty and are now members of a, uh, a middle class in Brazil or consuming class in Brazil. And those positive results that we have achieved under three presidents or four presidents have uh, created new demands. You know, people want more, they want better, they want faster. And education is absolutely key. Again, education is improving in Brazil, but not at the pace. Uh, the economy needs it to improve. One of the major problems in Brazil is international competitiveness. And uh, as we all know, in the United States, that has uh, similar problems at a different, obviously, uh, uh, scale. Uh, in Brazil, the problem is much more massive. Uh, the uh, education is key. So invest in education, invest in technical education, improve uh, language skills, etc. Healthcare is the same. This emerging middle class uh, needs more uh, 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 quality of service and the profile of illnesses in Brazil has changed from the traditional illnesses of a developing country uh, to the cancers and the heart problems, etc. So this is also, and all of this, as we all know, in the United States costs a lot of money. And finally, infrastructure, even 
if we didn't have the World Cup or the Olympics, Brazil would need to invest billions and billions of dollars to update uh, highways, to build railways, to uh, build ports, airports. All of this needs to be done. It's being done. Again, the question is the velocity. Uh, and uh, this all offers an enormous opportunity for the country to attract investment. So switching gears, Paulo, are you a, uh, a football fan, a soccer fan? Uh, I grew up uh, watching Pelé play, Rick. So I was uh, a fan of his team, was Santos, was not even from my city. I'm from Sao Paulo. Santos is the port city uh, near Sao Paulo. Uh, but, uh, and then, you know, I, 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 I cheer mostly for the, the Brazilian team, uh, the national team. I don't no longer have a, a sort of a preferred team uh, there. Uh, but, uh, uh, the important thing about uh, soccer, and especially in those events, uh, uh, soccer has been in Brazil not only a, a sport that we all love, but it is, and we all play, uh, but uh, it's also a, a very important social equalizer in a very uh, unequal uh, and, and divided society. Uh, uh, no, Brazil, until the recent times, was... Uh, 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 the world champion of inequality. Today, the situation is much better. I think the country is making, continues to make progress. But soccer was the one thing, uh, music also, but soccer especially, is the one thing that no Brazilian will claim to know more than the, other, the next Brazilian. We all love it. We all think we know everything there is to know about it. Uh, being a soccer coach of the national team must be the most difficult task because you're second-guessed all the time by 200 million people. And, uh, you know, people will be uh, decorating the cities and the streets and having parties, etc. So I think it will be, a, it will be a, a very nice time. I also believe that uh, people coming from abroad uh, to uh, participate to watch the games will be very well received. Uh, you mentioned that Brazil has won the Cup more times than any other country in the world. Any chance that Brazil will unseat the Spanish, uh, who are the current champions? Well, if you take the last year's uh, Confederations Cup, the final was Brazil and Spain in Brasilia, and Brazil beat Spain, uh, you know, very well and with not much difficulty. So uh, I think that uh, I, I don't see Brazilians uh, even thinking about uh, a different outcome. Obviously, people know soccer in Brazil. Thank you so much, Paulo Santero of the Woodrow Wilson Center, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Join us via Skype. It's a pleasure, Rick. This planet we call Earth. Abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Reinerio Arce, the president and rector of the Protestant Ecumenical Seminary of Matanzas, Cuba. 
Arce came to Washington, D.C. to lobby on behalf of religious groups to end the U.S. economic embargo on Cuba. Here are excerpts from our conversation conducted in the offices of the National Council of the Churches of Christ on Capitol Hill. You may be able to hear some of D.C.'s downtown traffic in the background. We are in a different world than in the 60s. And uh, we think we should, we have the right as people to live in relation and good friendship. Uh, there, has, uh, there has been, in spite of the language differences, there has been a, a historically a close relation between the uh, North American, U.S. people and the people in Cuba. So uh, it doesn't make any sense anymore and didn't make any sense but it doesn't make absolutely any sense after all these years to continue with all these problems that divide us these i call it these walls that uh, ideological political walls that have been lifted in the florida channel that uh, that uh, doesn't let us relate as people and that has caused um, for the cuban family that is separated there are a lot of a lot of thousands of Cubans living in the United States. And there were times it was more difficult since this administration, at least, our, our relatives can visit us. Uh, but still, there are a lot of uh, requirements and at the same time for Cubans to visit uh, the United States. So I think, um, and the churches think that God has called us to be instruments of reconciliation, to be instruments of peace, of good relations, and that is why we're here, to try to do that. There are specific things that we are uh, we identifying right now. Well, what is the embargo? And, that, uh, and we, uh, the churches in Cuba and the churches in the, UN, in the United States are against the embargo. Because these measures, these economical measures like the embargo, the only thing they cause is the suffering of the people the children, especially the most vulnerable people, the children, the elderly, those are the ones who suffer. And it doesn't make any, any sense politically. I'd like to get back to that, but, but let's go to a very basic question. What's it like to be in the religious community in Cuba, and how much freedom do you have to practice, to preach, to proselytize now? Well, actually, uh, Many people don't know that. They even ask us if they, they are Christians in Cuba. There's a church in Cuba. Sure, there's a church in Cuba. So we have an active church. Religion in general, not only Christians, religion in general has been growing in Cuba for the last 20 years enormously. We have been in different, uh, we have lived different moments, different moments of difficulties in the 60s and the 70s where there was tension between the churches and the government. We were discriminated as Christians. But that has passed. Uh, I think we are in a very good moment. We have freedom to preach, freedom to worship. Churches now are involved in social work. We have the possibility of doing social work uh, with elderly, with uh, disabled people, with uh, sick children. So the churches are involved in different programs, social programs, uh, helping people who need our help. That's traditionally been a part of the Cuban state since the revolution. Exactly. And the Cuban state has done a better job than many countries in mm -hmm. Latin America has. So this is an interesting change. Exactly. But because it's, it, although it's a, a difference between the Cuban state and other Latin American countries, the state can't do everything. 
and the state acknowledged that the church can and must. It's part of our mission. I always say the mission of the church has two sides. One, to proclaim the gospel. One, to bring Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ. But the other part of that coin, the two sides of a coin, is that God is calling us as disciples to help the people. And I think the Cuban government slowly has acknowledged that. That is part of the mission. If you, if you do not let the church do that, you are, you are, uh, you are stopping the church of its mission. And I think now the Cuban government has understand that, and we are committed to that. And uh, we, we have freedom of religion. Surely, there are always problems no? but, uh, that you have to discuss. I guess here also, no? issues that have to be discussed between churches and government, different issues. But uh, I say, no, we're not, the, we're not the kingdom of God. There are, there are problems in Cuba, and there are sometimes some issues that we have to discuss. But in general, the, the freedom of, of, uh, of worship, the freedom of uh, having your own religion, not only Christians, we have other religions that are more in number than Christians in Cuba. Being um, Santeria and exactly, other religions. Afro, Afro-Cuban religions, we have a Jewish community, we have the Spiritism in Cuba, that's from the 19th century, we have a Muslim community, we have Baha'is, we have Buddhists, those are small groups. The largest groups are Christians and the Afro-Cuban religions, especially the Santeria. And the Jewish community also, and the Spiritism, there are a number that are the, and about the largest. What's the percentage of people now practicing some type of religion in Cuba? Oh, I think we are a very religious people. I think the majority of the Cubans, I don't know exactly the percent, but I will guess more than 80-85% of the, of the people practice or have some kind of religious faith. And also, the, in Cuba, you have the, what we call the popular religion. Uh, for example, people who are not Roman Catholic, they are not, they're not Christians, not Roman Catholic or Protestant, they're not Santeros, but they worship, they worship San Lazaros. And if you go to Cuba the 17th of December, that's a good uh, moment to go if you want to research about religion in Cuba. You, that's the San Lazaros Day, and you will find 100,000 people walking to the sanctuary that's very near Havana, south of Havana, about 10 kilometers from Havana. You see thousands of people walking there because they have promised to San Lazaro. San Lazaro has to do with uh, health, people believe. So uh, there are different forms of religion in Cuba. So in spite of these, uh, let's say, these 50 years or 45 years of atheist, uh, uh, atheist, uh, uh, Atheist understanding of the government, let's say, put it that way, we are religious people, we, and we still are, and we still are. And now, I think the government, the party, have understood that, and they are, and even recently, the president of Cuba, uh, in the closing speech in the, in the National Assembly, he called the churches to help to develop values in, in the Cuban population that are needed. And I think that's something really new, no? calling the religion and the churches to help in that issue. No? So we're living in a different moment. Cuba is changing. Cuba is changing. We are in a transformation. With all the, the, the good things and the bad things of change, you know, and the, with the uncertainty for many people and with the hope of others. 
And our job as churches, our call as churches, is to bring hope that God is with us, that God doesn't abandon us, that God will always be with us as people. Here in Washington, um, there is some discussion about changes between the United States and Cuba, but you even see a liberal newspaper like the Washington Post very recently saying, not enough reforms in Cuba for us to take these next steps. How can you convince people on this side of the Florida Straits that there have been significant reforms? Well, I don't know if I can convince them. I only say what's going on as Cubans there. And when you come to Cuba, many Americans, when they come to Cuba, delegation of the church, what should I say in the United States? Well, see what you saw and just see what you saw. And I think I'm, I, I, my experience that when people from the, the North America comes to visit us in Cuba, they have another perspective of what's happening in Cuba. Thank you so much, Dr. Renario Arce, the president and rector of the Protestant Ecumenical Seminary in Matanzas, Cuba, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Both Secretary of State John Kerry and Vice President Joe Biden have harshly criticized the response of Venezuelan President Maduro to the continuing protests of opposition groups. Biden called the situation in Venezuela alarming and accused the government of confronting peaceful protesters with force and armed vigilantes, with limiting freedom of press and assembly and arresting political opponents. Kerry has charged the government with using terrorist tactics. These are accurate assessments. The Venezuelan government has repressed legitimate political activity and committed human rights abuses. It has violated democratic norms, legal procedures, and its own constitution. Still, it would be a mistake for the U.S. government to employ even threatened sanctions at this stage. Imposing sanctions would leave the United States isolated with the support only of Canada and perhaps one or two Latin American or Caribbean nations. Most governments have expressed solidarity with the Maduro administration. Some are outright allies. Others have important economic interests at stake, and still others want to avoid trouble with their own leftist parties. Only Panama has been willing to break a regional consensus against any intervention in Venezuela. Standing alone, U.S. measures will have virtually no influence on events in Venezuela. They could make things worse. They may energize the pro-government forces, increase their conviction that Washington is in league with the opposition, and leave them more resistant to compromise. Support for the Maduro government across Latin America would probably increase. The Latin American nations have chosen their own course. Twelve South American countries agreed to send a mission to Venezuela in early April, ostensibly to assist the Maduro government in finding a peaceful solution. The rest of Latin America and the Caribbean is passively watching. It should be clear that even if it succeeds, 
the Latin American initiative will not restore democracy, the rule of law, or economic sanity to Venezuela. But even a fragile peace that gets nonviolent protesters out of jail, curbs government brutality, and allows for a measure of free political activity would represent a sizable advance. The time for the U.S. to act will come if the Latin American approach fails to end the violence and the situation in Venezuela becomes more desperate. The countries of the region may themselves then be more willing to consider more forceful intervention, perhaps in collaboration with Washington. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and are not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, slash, Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, slash, Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014. Las Rocas Productions.